This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. You still use lab timers or does everybody just use your phone? Dan, what's your central question here? <laughs> My question is how to get out of grad school, Josh. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share some time-tested advice for actually getting some work done each day. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 175. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, good to see you. Good to see you. How you been? Josh, I am doing great because you have brought us a special beer today. This is a farmhouse ale, which I tend to like. This is a farmhouse ale, Dan. I picked this one up for you. Actually, we just wrapped up our series of IPAs. Now we're transitioning to beers I know you're interested in. I got some, some Belgians got this farmhouse ale. I think you're going to like these, but we're starting with the farmhouse ale. This is called Le Tub, which I guess is French for the tub. The tub, I would guess. <laughs> as, in, as in bathtub, based on the... My the French isn't great, but I'm art. pretty sure it means the tub. <laughs> well, this is from Weiner Beer Company, so I guess that'll be great for us. <laughs> Spelled like it sounds, W-H-I-N-E-R. Weiner Beer Company in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, I checked out the website, and I need you to click on that link I put in the show notes and just take in the animation that happens when you click that link. Yeah, you specifically told me not to click on it before we start recording, so my interest is peaked. So I'm clicking. What is happening? <laughs> it's, it's the art on the can, but in animated form. <laughs> It's like a guy sitting on a tub. This link will be in our show notes, I'm assuming. I can't figure out, Dad, there's, he's sitting in the tub taking drinks of the beer. There's a cat with a mouse in its mouth sitting on the side of the tub. But I can't figure out, Dad, there's these little black things that are falling out of the tub. They look like bugs or fleas. I wouldn't say he's drinking the beer. I'd say he's spraying the beer into his eye. <laughs> the tub is suspended <laughs> over a black hole like you would get from Wile E. Coyote. <laughs> And there's a creature coming out of it. And there's a duck near a snorkel. There's a lot going on. Uh, You need to check it out. It's all animated and it makes absolutely no sense. There's a taxidermy goat with a cheese painting hanging out of its mouth. Yeah, it's it's pretty phenomenal. I think I could sit... uh, The same thing happens over and over, but I've stared at this (laughs) animation for far too long. Yeah, so so please uh, please check that out and check out this beer. Uh, What do you think about the beer, Dan? Well, it definitely picks up some sour notes. So this one has the, um, is it Brettanomyces or is it something, some other flavor we're tasting? Yeah, you know, my understanding with a farmhouse ale is unlike more traditional styles of beer where there are very specific strains of yeast that are used for fermentation, the farmhouse ale kind of originates from, I guess, sort of leaving the mash out and letting whatever is in the air land on it and start to ferment it. I don't know if that it's actually that uncontrolled uh, these days. Could and, be those fleas out of that guy's bathtub. We don't know. <laughs> could be. Uh, but it definitely has some of the telltale characteristics of a farmhouse ale and it's sort of a 
tangy, more sour note than a typical ale, which I don't always, I don't always like, but this is not overpoweringly sour. Yeah. I do like that on the website they list, you know, they list the hops and the ABV and all those things you're accustomed to seeing, but they list yeast slash bacteria. Uh, the yeast is a saison, and the bacteria is lactobacillus in this case. So I like that. Now we've got pairings. We've got combinations of organisms that are going into the beer to create this specific flavor. It's a partnership, really. It's a partnership. Eukaryotes and prokaryotes together at last. <laughs> well, I, I'm enjoying it. Um, keep bringing the, the farmhouse ales, Josh. I do want to take a minute, though, before we get started to thank Promega. You can find proteomics content on Promega Student Resource Center. You can discover proteomics methods and techniques. Uh, you can express and detect proteins, examine protein interactions, and much, much more. Just go to promega.com slash helloproteins. Hey, Dan, speaking of Promega, we don't usually do this, but um, we've been partners with Promega for, geez, I don't even know how long. It's been, what, three years at years least? Years and years. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Time has gone by strangely in the last few years. But anyway, this all got started because of, of Jenny, who reached out to us from Promega back in the day, whenever that was, actually had listened to the show, <laughs> which stood out uh, to us from some other folks that reach out from time to time, uh, but really thought some of the things they're trying to do at Promega to help out students and uh, really support them in their training connected with the types of things we're trying to do, because that's what we want to do by, by having this show. And so uh, the reason I bring it up is Jenny's had some great, had a great opportunity and is moving on to some, some other things and won't be at Promega anymore. We're continuing our partnership with them, but we just want to take just a second on the show to say thanks to Jenny for <laughs> making the connection and reaching out to us in the first place. And also just her kindness and her passion for, uh, for students and for people in general. She has been a real pleasure to work with. Yeah. And partnership. I mean, she's a real advocate for uh, students in this space and, and we really do appreciate her uh, and best of luck to her and her new job. Yes. Thank you, Jenny. And best of luck. Also, Dan, we wanted to say a special thank you to a new Patreon patron. Special thanks to Mario, who has joined our growing list of patrons. Thanks so much. All right, Dan, let's get on to our topic of the week. Dan, we have covered a lot of specific aspects of grad school and careers through the years. But, you know, one thing we haven't talked about in a while is just how to get research done. Is that a goal that people have, actually doing research? I thought <laughs> the goal was to get in and then to find a career afterwards. There's that middle year that I'm kind of hazy on. That, that is an important part, but, you know, it, I was thinking about it this week leading up to this episode and thinking about what we were going to talk about. I was like, you know, we haven't talked much about in a while the thing that grad students spend most of their time doing during grad school. And I do have some things to say about about this topic because when I when I reflect back, Dan, I think I would be a way better grad student today if I went back to grad school <laughs> based on the school of hard knocks, all the really hard lessons that I learned along the way. But one reason we want to do this podcast is, as we mentioned, we want to hopefully help you get through grad school maybe an easier way <laughs> without having to stick your hand on the stove uh, and learn the hard way. Yeah, I think that's. Uh there's hope in looking back and saying there was a better way to do this. And if I had done it this better way, then 
my experience would have been better. And so you're, you're offering that to people going through that process right now, or maybe they're hopefully enrolling in the fall. Here are some time-tested advice for how to get through those day-to-day, I've got experiments to do, or I've got research, or I've got papers, or I've got grants. And you can, as we both know, Josh, you can lose years on doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing in the wrong way. And, and it just evaporates and you look back and you say, how did all this time pass? It's just incredible. Yeah. And that's what we definitely want to avoid. So I want to be clear from the outset that most of these tips, as I mentioned, were definitely born out of hindsight. I was not some amazing wonderkind <laughs> in the research lab. Uh, you knew me, Dan, back then. That was certainly not true. Um, I can definitely remember as I was thinking through what I wanted to talk about this week, I can remember many ways that I was not always very good at this stuff while I was actually going through grad school, learned a lot of it the hard way. Um, But again, I did learn some stuff during grad school and my postdoc. And so reflecting back on that, I was definitely a better researcher toward the end of my lab training than I was at the beginning. And if I did go back, which I'm not going to do, I would approach it in the way I'm going to lay out now. Um, Dan, you know, would you, I've been reflecting a lot this week on my grad school experience. Would you say, thinking back, you were an awesomely organized, efficient experimentalist when you were in grad school? I was very organized about making sure I went to lunch each day <laughs> and, and making sure I took a really long time to do that. Uh, I definitely sampled all the restaurants <laughs> in the town. So, but the experiment part, I was less organized about. Lunch is the most important meal of the day when you're... When you're trying to (laughs) avoid experiments. That's right. That's right. All right, Dan. Well, I'm going to go through these four tips. So let's start with uh, number one, which is know your question. When I work with students, and especially have worked with students who are starting fresh and brand new labs, I always like to push them to make sure they have a clear understanding of what their research question actually is. So no matter what field you're in or how broad or focused your specific project is, you probably have some specific question that you're trying to answer. And I think it's important to be able to articulate that. What I have seen, though, and and this was true for me in the past as well, was I didn't always have a clear idea of what my research question was. And because of that, first, it was hard for me to effectively talk about my project, either formally in a seminar or at lab meeting, or even informally with my PI or other lab mates. And on one hand, you might say, well, this is a super basic point, like knowing what the basic question of your research is. You know, of course, I know my research question. And if that's you, I would say, well, great, good for you. But I've also seen sometimes what can happen is you start in a new lab and there's new info and techniques and papers that are all flying at you quickly and you're trying to keep up. And the next thing you know, a week or a month or even a year has gone by and you realize, wait a second, what am I doing? (laughs) What's the point of all this? And it can be really easy to get bogged down in the weeds of the day-to-day experiments and you lose sight of the big picture question that those individual experiments fit into. And besides making it hard to think and talk about your science, number two it can be hard to keep your motivation level up if you lose sight of the connection between what you're doing day to day and the big picture of why you're doing it. And you know what can happen too is it's compounded when, like I said, let's say you're two months in 
and you're feeling unsure of yourself and you realize, you know what? I honestly have no clue why I'm doing this experiment and what these results are even going to mean. That can feel really embarrassing. And unfortunately, what you often want to do at that point is the exact opposite of what you should do. You want to try to fake it even more because you're like, well, geez, I should know this. And it would have been okay to ask these questions in my first week, but now they're going to know I'm totally a phony and full of it. So, you know, it goes back to one of my favorite sayings, Dan, the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The second best time is today. So if you're in that situation where you're not totally sure what it is you're doing and why, stop everything, scrap your experiments for the afternoon and do what you need to do to understand what you're doing and why. And what you might find out when you do this is that you don't know because no one told you, or there truly is some hole in the logic or flaw in your experimental design. Maybe you can figure it out on your own, but honestly, don't be afraid to just come clean with your PI, maybe another trusted person in your lab who seems like they know what's going on and say, you know what, I just don't get why we're doing this or what the big idea is and give them a chance to teach you. And don't give up until you understand what you're doing why you're doing it, how it fits into the big picture. Because once you have a firm grasp on that, a lot of other productivity and confidence flows from that because now you're able to frame each of your experiments and conversations and presentations with that solid understanding of your main question. Josh, I really like that. But I, I feel like that is at least two or three related themes that, that you described because you're talking about the main question. And the main question is probably like, we're in a neuroscience lab, so we're interested in neuronal development. Or we're, we're in a cancer lab, and so we're interested in a specific kind of cancer. I bet you a lot of students know what gets written on the grant proposal in terms of what the ultimate goal is. But I think what you're talking about is keeping a very clear link in your mind between what you're doing day to day and that main goal. And I think that is much more tenuous. And in my own experience, Josh, I got pulled off course a lot by little projects, little side things that it wasn't always my idea. Sometimes the PI would say, hey, could you research this thing? We're thinking about doing a new grant and it's going to be on this topic. And that, that new topic had nothing to do with what my, <laughs> my dissertation needed to be on or on really what the lab was studying in general. And so then I would embark on six months of experiments. And then in somewhere in the middle of that time, I'd be like, wait, what is this all about again? Why am I doing this? <laughs> and I think that's what you're talking about. It's, it's very easy to be working day to day and just forget that it's supposed to be working toward a goal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even when I talk about this main question, it may not be a big, lofty, far-reaching question like curing cancer. How do we cure cancer? You know, I mean, your research question might be, that's sort of central to your thesis, might be, how does this protein interact with this other protein? And so I think it's important if that is the main question that you are trying to address through your dissertation, through your project, it's important for you to keep that towards the front of your mind. So every experiment you design you can match that up with that question and say, okay, how does this experiment get me closer to answering that specific question? And I think that really helps you stay organized with even thinking about, hey, you know what, is this actually a good experiment to do? Like, Is this actually useful 
to help me move towards answering this question that is my dissertation question because I think you know you were you mentioned Dan sometimes your PI throwing out crazy ideas and sending you down rabbit trails that's one way that can can get you off course and bog you down and and really be antagonistic towards your productivity but also Dan what would happen to me often if I wasn't keeping my own specific research question in mind is I'd start getting sort of intellectually sloppy with the experiments I did. Maybe I was sort of in a role of like, oh yeah, I'm getting really the hang of doing this one type of experiment. I'm going to just keep churning that crank over and over. And then you realize like, wait a second. Yeah, I'm collecting data, but this data in no way is relevant (laughs) to moving me closer to writing up a paper about this research question that's actually part of my thesis. And so I guess a lot of these really have to do with working smarter, not harder, and, or, or keeping you from wasting time. Because like you mentioned at the very beginning, Dan, it is so easy in a PhD program to lose track of days, lose track of months, lose momentum, and then a year has gone by and you're no closer to graduating than when you started. Yeah, I really like that framing. You could you could title this how to get more done, but the sort of negative side of that coin is how to stop wasting so much time. And I think all <laughs> of your advice today is centered around that theme as well. Um, there's an extraordinary amount of time that you could waste in grad school. Been there, done that, uh, but you don't have to. And it doesn't really take that much energy to sort of reorder your day so that you are wasting less time and getting more done. And I think that's what you're trying to get to here. Absolutely. And Dan, that's a great segue into the second tip. And the second tip, I'm, I'm calling this, the last thing you do is to plan. That is true for me. The last thing I did was to plan. <laughs> I just didn't do it. And obviously, I don't mean it exactly that way because planning is actually a big part of this. And Whatever you do, very don't plan. That's the last thing you should be trying to do. Dan, have you ever heard the saying, failure to plan is a plan to fail? Unfortunately, yes, I have. I'm full of the quotes today, Dan. I'm like a fortune cookie every You are. So that's what this next tip is all about. It actually is about making a plan. I think making a plan is a good thing, but I'm going to recommend a specific way and a specific time that you actually devote to making that plan. And this ended up being a really important one for me. Early on in grad school, my general way of being organized and having a plan was I'd show up in the morning, get my cup of coffee, chat with some folks in the lab about last night's episode of American Idol or whatever other show was popular in the mid-2000s. Ooh, Survivor. Survivor was a big (laughs) deal. Oh, yeah, maybe it was Survivor. You know, know, Dan, they're up to, I think it's like Survivor. I saw this. It's like Survivor 40 or something like that. I think back in these days, it was like, it was the first Three. season or two. <laughs> it was single sure. digits for sure. But, you know, you do all that. And finally, when you sit down at your lab bench with your notebook, and I'd start making a list of experiments I wanted to do for the day, I'd realize it's like 10.30 a.m. and I haven't even picked up a pipetter yet. Um, or even worse, by the time I actually sit down, write up my plan, get ready to do some experiments, I was probably calling you up about that point because I'm like, oh, you know, I'm starting to get hungry. It's lunchtime. <laughs> and so then you go to lunch and, you, and you're kind of stressed. You know, you're not really enjoying lunch because you realize like, oh my gosh, I've been here half a day and I haven't done a single thing. Yeah, it's not a good time to take a break at that spot. <laughs> but you do. <laughs> you you do, do, for sure. And, you know, to be honest, what this led to for me, besides a loss of productivity and time, 
was then my afternoons would start being even more crammed and hectic as I tried to frantically fit in all the things I was hoping to get done in the day, or I would end up having to work later into the evening because I wasn't very efficient with my time in the morning. Yeah, it's that guilt. The guilt drives, like, I didn't get anything done today. Well, I better stay late. But then you're just miserable. And then the <laughs> next morning, you're like, well, I stayed so late. I don't need to get started so early. It just keeps repeating. <laughs> But you, you know exactly, Dan, are you remembering those feelings that I'm describing here? Yes, I do. Well, you know, back in those days, I can remember, Dan, um, I was married and my wife and I had one car. And I can't tell you how many times that I would call her to pick me up because the last bu- bus had already ran. And I'd tell her something like, oh, I'm going to be done at seven. But then in reality, what happened every day, she'd get there <laughs> and sit for 45 minutes while I just finished one more thing. Because uh, I really, I don't think scientists have a very good gauge for how long things take. I think further evidence that your wife is a saint. Go ahead. <laughs> she she reminds me of this time <laughs> occasionally. But, you know, I'm just thankful that reflecting on those days, my situation, I didn't have kids or family back then, because it really would not have been a tenable situation. And I know lots of grad students do have people they're taking care of outside of school. So I think what we're talking about now, this is even more important for them. So here's my suggestion of what eventually did work well for me, and that is plan the night before. So the last thing you do before you leave lab in the evening is you make a plan for tomorrow. When you plan in the morning, you're often wasting your most productive time of the day. If you plan at the end of the day, there's a couple advantages. First, as you're wrapping up in the afternoon, you are acutely aware of where things are finishing up and what the next steps are. The next morning, you probably have to take a little bit of time to consult your notes or try to remember, where did I leave off on that experiment? What was I trying to do? And Dan, I was was very notorious, uh, let me know if you did this too, of thinking I would remember stuff later without writing it down. You know, I would... (laughs) I still do that, Josh. (laughs) I mean, example I always think of was like, you know, you're labeling some tubes to put in your freezer box. And you'd have them labeled A, B, C, D or whatever. And you'd think like in that moment, you 100% know what A, B, C, and D represent. I still so remember. Think- I still remember A, B, C, and D. <laughs> Let me just tell you what those was in those tubes, Josh. <laughs> well, you know, and so what I would do is instead of taking like 30 seconds to just jot down quickly in my lab notebook, A is this and B is this and C is this. I would just throw them in my freezer box. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll remember. Put them in the freezer, come in the next morning, open the box. And then what it's like. Uh, wait, A was the control. No, maybe D was the control. Oh my gosh, which one? Oh well, throw this whole experiment away. I'll just do it again. I'm gonna Have throw you been a, there. I'm gonna throw a quote at you, Josh. You're gonna you're gonna use this one from now on. Uh, the faintest ink is better than the strongest memory. And oh, I like that it. one. That one will stick with you because it is so true. You have in your mind that this is so obvious. And in hours or days or whatever it is, and you put that box in the back of the minus eighty freezer you may as well just throw it in the garbage because it means absolutely nothing if you did not write it down. That's 100% true. I want to throw something else in here, though. Yeah, please do. Um, I have heard the suggestion for people who write fiction. You're familiar with writer's block where you just cannot think of the next thing to write. And I've heard people say, if you want to be a, a writer, an author, you should write into the middle of a scene where you know exactly what's going to happen and then stop so that when you pick your pen back up, it's easy to get started on the thing that you know is about to happen. If you stop at the end of 
of a thought or a scene or an idea and you don't know what comes next, you will get blocked. You will not have any idea how to continue that. Um, your brain will kind of get blocked up by not knowing how to continue. So stopping in the middle where you actually know what comes next is way better than stopping at the end of something. And I think that's what you're saying here. You're saying at the end of the day, you know what should happen the next day. Stop there, write it down, and then the next morning, you know exactly where to begin. Yeah, that, that's a perfect comparison, Dan. I like that a lot. Uh, and actually, you probably could uh, utilize those tips in your scientific writing as well. We might have to do a could whole be. episode on that. Let's try it out. But you know, Dan, besides, besides that advantage, I think another advantage to making your plan at the end of the day is you make sure you don't forget any steps you need to set up ahead of time. And this may not be true for all scientists, but for the the work I was doing, there were lots of experiments where if I wanted to do something that day, I needed to get some plates set up or some strains out of the incubator the day before. And when I wasn't intentionally planning the next day at the end of the previous day, I can't tell you how many times I would lose a whole day because I came into lab in the morning planning to do an experiment and I had forgotten to streak out some strain I needed, make some buffer or whatever the night before. And then the last thing, as we stated, when you make your task list the evening before, as soon as you get into lab, in contrast to what we described earlier, you're ready to hit the ground running and you can actually cross some big things off your list before lunchtime. And I tell you what was true for me, that felt really good. And more often I felt like I could leave by five or five thirty, feeling like I got a lot accomplished. I did I got done what I needed to do. And by being more efficient early in the day, that left more time to discuss uh, Survivor later on. I mean, what are they going to eat in the next Survivor challenge? That's the question. <laughs> no, it's it's so true. And thinking back to, I, I think Lab is a little bit unique in the time lag between being able to start something and the preparation it takes to get there. So if if I'm at my job right now and I have to write a piece of code, I can stop at 5 p.m. if I need to. And the next morning, that everything is fine. I start again. The computer hasn't changed, and everybody's happy. But if you're if you're growing cells, if you are streaking plates, if you are pouring gels, if you have assays that take a certain amount of incubation time, all of it has this waiting period in the middle, and you can't just pick that up. My my only current experience of this is I try to make bread a lot, and I'm trying to make a lot of sourdough bread. And usually when I want to make sourdough bread, I don't have the sourdough starter ready. You're familiar with this process where you like have to let it grow and get into log phase and then you mix it with the dough and it rises. It's microbiology, really. It's, it's all microbiology. It's probably the same stuff in our beer. But <laughs> I want to make a loaf of bread, but I didn't start the thing two days ago. So then I start the thing, you know, I start the sourdough starter and two days from now, I may not, I may not want to make bread anymore. I may have gone and bought a loaf of bread. So it's really this, like, if I would just plan my, my bread-making schedule the same way you plan your experiments, I'd be better off. Well, I'm glad to hear these tips carry on their usefulness into life beyond grad school as well. At least in one realm. All right, Dan, this next one is maybe my biggest, most important grad school tip of them all. And that is... Less is more. So when I was a grad student, especially early on, I had this mindset that my worth as a grad student and a scientist was measured by how many experiments I could get done in a day. 
I'd see other people in the lab and on my floor running around frantically, balancing test tube racks while they dug through the incubator, pulling out Petri dishes. They'd have three timers clipped to their lab coat that would constantly be beeping and and then that would set them off sprinting in another direction. Do you remember seeing people like that, Dan? Maybe they're it was you. forces of nature. They're amazing. And they're they're awe inspiring when you are a lowly graduate student and you see a postdoc or something that is doing that. I, I love the image of the person with multiple timers clipped to their coat because I've definitely seen that. You know, I wonder now, this, sorry, this is really dating us quite a bit, and we normally try not to do this on the show. But I wonder if this imagery still makes sense today, because I would be interested to hear from grad students who are in the, the wet lab, in the research lab. Do you still use lab timers, or does everybody just use your phone? Because we didn't have... Time this for me. <laughs> Like, you, you know, you can set like uh, eight timers, you know, on your on your alarm app on your phone. I'm curious, do people still use lab timers or does everyone still use their phone? I don't or know. Just if, use their phone? if you're wearing gloves and some kind of chemical that I don't want on my phone, I'm not sure I'd be touching my phone, but people are different. That's a good point. My watch, I would talk to my watch maybe. Think about that super busy looking grad student or postdoc. For a while there, that's what I tried to emulate. It really was my vision of, okay, that's what a really good scientist looks like. And, you know, this problem was actually compounded when I wasn't heeding my advice from the last tip of planning the night before. Uh, But what I found out was the more experiments that I tried to cram into the day, the slower I seemed to be progressing overall. I started to realize that out of three experiments that I would have planned for a day, it was a very common occurrence that I'd have to scrap at least one of them because I made some careless mistake, I ran out of time, or I missed some key incubation or time point because I was busy trying to work on the other experiment I was trying to get done at the same time. Not to mention, I was feeling really stressed out most days, just running around, pardon the phrase, running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I can actually remember one day coming in and saying to myself, you know what, this is just not working. I had one experiment that was really important for my project that just kept failing. And I recognized if I could just get that one thing to work, that would be a huge step forward. So I decided for one day, I was just going to focus on that one experiment and nothing else. And of course, you know what happened. The experiment did work because I finally gave myself the time and space to have all my reagents organized and set up ahead of time. I carefully and intentionally made sure I did all the steps correctly. All of my incubations were actually the exact right time that I wanted them to be. And when the experiment was done, I even had time to look at the preliminary results and write them up in my notebook, which honestly is how science should be done. But I was so frantic before, again, thinking that that's what a good scientist did, that I was just spinning my wheels. So from that point on, that's what I started doing. I'd plan one key experiment to do most days. And, you know, I wasn't dogmatic about this. There were definitely some days that maybe I had several super easy or quick things to do. So maybe I would do several things on those days. But in general, I shifted my thinking to a place where it was better to do fewer experiments really well than do lots of experiments really sloppy. And what happened was, honest to goodness, Dan, when I started changing my mindset in this way, I can remember the result of that was not just my project starting to progress faster, but I felt less overwhelmed while I was at work. You know, doing an experiment where you give it the time and space you actually need to do it in an organized fashion is so much more enjoyable 
than running around like that chicken trying to do five things or having the seven timers lined up on your bench. So I think related to that, Dan, was by doing this, I got to a place where for the most part, I wasn't staying all hours of the night and day working in the lab. I wasn't working on weekends very often. Your wife wasn't chauffeuring you around? <laughs> well, I think that was probably still happening. <laughs> but, you know, the type of research I was doing, I'd mentioned that I often had to set things up the night before most of the time. So, um, you know, most weeks I did have to run into lab on Sunday night for about 15 minutes to get some strain streaked out. But I certainly was not working all day on Saturday or Sunday, hardly ever. And objectively, I like to think I was actually a pretty productive grad student at the end. Had my papers, I finished right around average time, but I also did other things that were important to me. I spent time with my wife. I did lots of hobbies unrelated to science. And Dan, you know, I love my hobbies. And I spent time with some really great friends who had nothing to do with grad school. And so I'm really thankful for that time too. And honestly, I think my ability to get to a place where I could do those things stemmed directly from putting into practice um, some of these strategies that I'm talking about here. Um, hearing all of this, Josh, I really wish you had told me some of this when I was <laughs> in grad school. <laughs> like it really could have helped me out if you threw me a bone here and gave me some advice. You know, I, I mentioned, and it is true, I, I can distinctly remember just sort of stopping one day and thinking, like, the way I'm approaching these experiments is not working. I don't remember exactly when it was, but just generally thinking about the type of experiments I was doing at that time, it was later on in my grad school experience, for sure. Several years <laughs> of running around like crazy and feeling stressed out had gone by. You couldn't have saved me then. You were too far gone. You didn't. You didn't want to hear it at that point, Dan. <laughs> I can. I can just imagine you sitting me down, Dan. What's your central question here? <laughs> My question is how to get out of grad school, Josh. <laughs> so true. So true. Good times. Glad they're past. All right. So we have arrived at my fourth and final tip. And, you know, I feel like these first three tips were really practical ones, but this last one has more to do with, I guess, maybe a mindset or, or just a reminder. I think one big trap that PhD students can fall into is this trap of trying to be independent. And, you know, trying to be independent, trying to grow and develop as an independent scientist is not a bad thing. I mean, that's something you often hear when you're thinking about going to grad school, or maybe you're interviewing for grad school, and they're telling you about what they're looking for in their students. And they'll say, we want people who can learn to be independent scientists. We value independence. And, you know, that's great. Constantly. That, think, that phrase comes up constantly. Constantly. But I think, not I think, one thing I have seen happen is grad students internalize that either in the wrong way or take that thought too far. And so what I want to say here is when we say growing to be independent, we mean independence, not isolation. And an example of that that I think is very common in grad school, I know this happened to me from time to time, it might have happened to you too, Dan, is because it's drilled into you like, okay, I've got to be independent. What we often do during our training is when we're working on our project and we get to a point where we're stuck, like we've tried things, we don't know why something's not working, we've hit a dead end. What we say to ourselves is, okay, well, I got to figure this out on my own because 
the goal is for me to be independent. So I've just got to like read more papers or repeat the experiment 72 more times and not say anything to anybody. Definitely don't ask for help. That's the worst thing you could do. (laughs) And you know, I've seen so many students fall and continue to fall into that trap. And it's the same trap that I fell into because the reality is being independent does not mean doing everything on your own. And I'll give you an example that's unrelated to science. We also grow in our independence as adults. Well, most of us do (laughs) as we progress through life. You know, I like to think I'm an independent adult now. I have a house, I have a family, I have a job, all that stuff. My air conditioner has broken before. And so when my air conditioner broke as a grown adult, I could say, well, I'm an independent person. I need to stop everything and research how to fix air conditioners. You got to go read the literature. <laughs> you got to got to go to Google. Maybe I'll go to the library and check out a book on compressors or Freon. You know, I'll buy some Freon and start dumping it <laughs> down the grate on the top. <laughs> You're halfway there, Josh. <laughs> halfway to killing the environment. You're doing great. I think you see, I think you see where I'm going with this, Dan. You know, my skill, I'm not mechanically inclined in that way where I am, I think I'm smart enough. I could probably figure it out eventually, but it's probably not worth my time (laughs) to figure out everything there is to know about fixing an air conditioner to get it running again. Instead, what do you do? You call somebody who is an expert or you get advice and support from somebody that does know how to do that. And that doesn't mean I'm not independent because I sought out help in that way. And it's the same thing about graduate school. You know, in fact, part of being independent is knowing when and who you need to go to in the event you do get stuck. Your PI probably does that all the time, right? They're very adept at realizing like, oh, you know what? We need to collaborate or you know, write an email or have a conversation with this other person who's an expert in this thing that we're interested in. You know, that's being independent is knowing when you need to ask for help and knowing um, who to go to. Another way to say it might be that you as the air conditioner owner take responsibility for the problem. It is, you are not waiting for somebody to swoop in and take care of this for you. You know you have to take steps to make the problem right. And in your research, you can't blame the PI because they didn't swoop in and tell you what you needed to know to fix this problem. Like, it is your job to make sure that you get past this hurdle. And so that is the, that is the independence of the responsibility. You are the drive behind answering this question. And if you don't drive it, nobody's going to drive it for you. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Dan. That's absolutely right. Because that also is driving your project forward by asking your lab mate, who's an expert in biochemistry, if that's what you're having, in Western blots, if that's what you're having trouble with, or you know, or researching who else on your campus knows how to do that thing and reaching out to them. Just because you didn't do everything, you're absolutely right, Dan. Um, it counts as you driving it forward if you're the one that that reached out and, and got that help. I was thinking of a scenario where your lab mate sees your Western blot in the garbage and picks it up and kind of looks at it closely and says, you know, you may want to change the buffer to this. Like, that would be somebody coming to your rescue when you didn't ask, but it would also be <laughs> extremely annoying. So make sure you take the initiative and seek them out. Don't wait for somebody to go through your failed experiments for you. 
Well, actually, when I do my Western blots, <laughs> I do it this way. All right, Dan. Well, that's just a few few tips as I was reflecting back this week on things I learned in grad school, in my postdoc, that really made the doing experiments part better or more efficient. And again, these were not things that I learned in my first week, but this was really reflecting back ways that I recognized that I was a better, more efficient researcher 10 years down the road than I was the first day I set foot in lab. And so my hope is that those of you listening, you might be really good at some of these things already. Maybe you pulled one little nugget out that'll help you have a better week, have a better semester, you know, have a quicker grad school experience. Um, and you know what? Maybe you've got some tips and things you've learned that really have helped you that you think others would benefit from. And if so, we would love to hear it. We want to share that with, with others too. Because again, that's really our motivation here is realizing, you know what, grad students are still struggling in very similar ways to the ways we did all those years ago, and we want to help that happen less. Yeah, I think this will be really valuable for current grad students, postdocs. And for me, Josh, this may save me. I, I occasionally have this <laughs> dream where I'm back in the lab the true story, and uh, I won't turn this into a therapy session, but I have this dream where I'm back in the lab and I have like a thousand experiments that I haven't done and I have that feeling of, oh no, I'm never going to get all these things done. So maybe in that in that dream, I will think to myself, <laughs> what is my central question? And can I do a little planning tonight rather than waiting till tomorrow? <laughs> Hopefully you'll save me, Josh. That dream sounds like it might be a nightmare, Dan. Uh, potato, potato. <laughs> Actually, I should have warned you before we got started, Dan, this topic may induce flashbacks of uh, panic and negative feelings from the past. All right. Well, like I mentioned, if you have any feedback or tips you want to share, or if you have a question or topic idea you'd like for us to discuss on the show, we certainly would love to hear it. You can reach out to us by email at podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support what we're doing, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks so much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Josh, another great episode. I appreciate you digging back through the archives of your mind. I'm going to spend the rest of the day staring at this LaTub animation and trying to figure out what is living in the hole below the tub. It's really creepy. This may this may replace your lab dream with a, a nightmare <laughs> right. I'll, revolving I'll the around cat LaTub. with the mouse <laughs> and the goat head. It's going to be great. I'm stuck in LaTub and I can't get out. <laughs> All right, Josh, we'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>